0: Today's passage is Esther, chapter 6, starting at verse 14, and through chapter 7. Esther, chapter 6, starting at verse 14, reading through chapter 7. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Esther 6, 14 through chapter 7. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king rose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated.
1: Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, the just half of that verse, there's this very succinct statement, but very powerful. And it just, Paul says simply, the weakness of God is stronger than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. And that simple little sentence from Paul about the message of the cross. He's speaking about that word of the cross that's considered folly. But even that foolishness of God is stronger than men. It, It, in a sense, captures the story of redemptive history. Throughout scripture, throughout church history, we see this pattern worked out over and over and over again. God allows these positions, these greatest positions of worldly power and influence and wealth to go to those who've made God their enemy. We see this Throughout history, Psalm two, verse two, testifies to this. We keep going back to Psalm two in our study of Esther, and for good reason. But Psalm two speaks of those those mighty rulers, those those uh, power brokers of the world. They they take their stand against the Lord and against His anointed. But then, as Patrick was alluding to, and and with. With this, you catastrophic aspects of storytelling, but then through the most unlikely and unexpected means, God overthrows his enemy and redeems his people. We see this pattern over and over and over. And so, this chapter in Esther is this beautiful example of this repeated pattern, this consistent theme. Of redemption throughout scripture God allows Haman to rise to power to build his gallows and what then he's hanged on those very same gallows and he comes to nothing that's what we see and so this story is this representative clip of this much longer version of the grand story of the Bible the weakness of God is stronger than men and so hold on to that thought we're going to come back to it before we come to the table now, we benefit, we were having some discussion about uh, technology in our elder meetings or in our elder prayer time just before this because JK had brought in some paper and it had this little dot matrix paper that had the little perforations that you tear off. And we were, that started the conversation. But I, if, uh, one, of the, one of the things that I, I do appreciate about modern digital technology is the ability to... Um, and those of the VCR generation and before, you, you, we just are astounded by this, but how fast you can, can go forward and slow things down in, in watching television or something like that. I, I do like to watch golf. I know some of you think that's absolute idiocy, but I enjoy it. But like slow motion technology now, when they slow that, they can, they can slow it down with, with such clarity. And you can see that golf ball actually compress when that driver hits it. And it's fascinating to me how how clear that is. Uh, now, when I hit the ball, it probably doesn't compress at all because I can't swing hard enough. But, but with those pros, it's, it's impressive. And then I love when I'm watching television, if I've got something recorded, you know, DVR or watching on, you know, Netflix or something like that. When you can, you, if you want to fast forward, you're not... Zzz, just waiting on that tape to go, you know, you just do a little lightning thing and you can cover like three hours of a golf tournament or something if you just want to get to the end in like 15 seconds. It's, it's incredible. And so anyway, I say all that, but the Esther story, we've seen this throughout the story. Sometimes it really, really slows down. And we're given all of this detail. We saw this when, when the queen made her, her, uh, unsummoned appearance before the king and, and he's talking about where she is and, in relation to the king and framed in this doorway and just all of these details. And then at other times it's just, he gives this really rapid fire account. And so here today, the narrative just goes at breakneck speed. And so remember where we left off last week. So Haman, who's the villain of this story, the bad guy, he, his whole world has just turned upside down. And so on the day he thinks he's going to execute his enemy, Mordecai the Jew, he ends up having to lead this celebratory parade in honor of Mordecai. And so he goes home, if you remember, at the end of chapter 6. He's humiliated, he's deflated, he's distraught, and his wife and advisors tell him to, you know, quote, comfort him. They say, uh, Haman, you're doomed. You're going to fall to Mordecai. You can't stand before him. And so, chapter six ends with this, in, as, as Steve just read a moment ago, while they were talking with him. So, as they're expressing this, uh, this, this prophetic message, as it were, this, that just them reading in the situation and circumstances, the blood's already draining from Haman's face as he's hearing these words, these dark predictions from his wife and his closest friends while they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So his invitation to this feast, you remember from a few weeks ago, this was something he was so excited about. He was so proud of the fact that he had been invited to not just one, but a second feast the very next day with the king and queen. I mean, he has reached the apex of his life and his career in politics. He 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 was over the moon about this. Well, now... This is a different perspective, I'm sure. He probably has no appetite as he's going to this elaborate feast that's prepared for him and the king. And so there's this dark, ominous uh, cloud hanging over his head as he's led to the feast. So verse 1, so the king and Haman, (coughs) they went into the feast with Queen Esther. And so Ahasuerus, the king, he probably thinks this is, he loves parties, we've seen this. He loves to drink, he loves to eat, he loves He loves uh, this kind of party atmosphere. So he's thinking this is just going to be a fun, happy, filled occasion. Haman uh, probably has some knots in his stomach as he's going to this feast. But maybe he's thinking, okay, this will lighten the mood a little bit. Maybe things aren't as bad as they seem. You know, I'm still going to the feast with the king and queen. Okay, not everything's off the rails yet. And so, but neither of those guys had a clue what awaited them as we see. So while they're drinking wine, Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther for the third time, remember, there's, he, this is the third time he's asked her this question, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. He, he's, he, he knows she risked her life, you remember, to go into his presence without being summoned, and so he knows there's something important that that she, she wants to talk to him about. And so he's saying, What is it? And he's he's begging her. He's so curious to know what it is that she's she wants. And so you can just put yourself in Esther's shoes here. Imagine the lump in her throat. as she's finally going to kind of spill the beans here and 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 make this appeal to this very impulsive and erratic and and wicked king, honestly, who's her husband. To, to, to make this appeal to say, to reveal her identity as a Jew and to ask him to save her people from this edict that's already been given, irrevocable edict to exterminate the Jews. So she has to tread very, very carefully here. So on one hand, she she's trying to point the finger at Haman, who is, remember, this is the king's friend. This is his absolute closest advisor. This is number two in the Persian Empire, the prime minister of the Persian Empire. So this is, this is, this is significant. And so he has, she has to do that. At the same time, she doesn't want to incriminate the king and turn him against her so that she becomes the object of his wrath. And so remember, Haman's decree that he wrote, it had the king's backing on it. The king gave him his signet ring and said, hey, whatever you want, do it and do it in my name. But the story picks up quickly here. So this is where you hit the remote and you go to like 10 times speed to really zip through. And so once the dialogue starts here, the story just races to Haman's destruction. And so let's see. Esther finally begins to answer the king, verse 3. So her reply is structured just like the king's question. So she says in essence, and I'm kind of chopping this up to give you the sense of the original language here. My life, that is my wish. To spare my people, that is my request. So he says, what's your wish? What's your request? This is it. And so by answering this way, what is she saying? She's saying, my life is bound up with my people. They're not separable. Their future is my future. They're one and the same. And so she's one with her people. And so she continues. Verse 4, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be, notice the language, destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if you've been with us throughout, you probably will recognize that language because you remember everything you hear in, in preaching here, I'm sure. So, But that you go back to chapter 3, verse 13. This is the exact language from that edict that Haman wrote. And so there in 3.13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to what destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, m- women and children in one day. And so You notice, though, what she does. She cleverly and very skillfully and effectively, she holds off saying anything about Haman's name, and she holds off uh, from saying anything about the fact that the king himself is the one who sold out the Jewish people for the 10,000 talents of silver, if you remember back from chapter 3. And so it's kind of like Nathan the prophet when he confronts David in his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of, of her husband, and so And Second Samuel twelve, and so Nathan kind of snuck past David's personal uh, defenses by by sort of stoking his anger and the sense of justice and wanting to do right uh, before he revealed to David that you know David, you're the man. And so this is this is that kind of same kind of thing happening here. So she goes on: If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would not. I would have been silent. For affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So she she throws in some some, uh, some very honest autobiography to lend some weight to her appeal here. Remember Esther herself, she had been abducted. She had been enslaved to be the sex object for the king and part of his harem. And so she knows what she's talking about here. But she knows she can't appeal just to the king's morality because he's not a moral man. He... he She can't convince him, you know, king, genocide is actually really wrong because he doesn't think it's wrong. (laughs) He has no problem with that. She can't appeal to some, like we would do, some constitutional right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because nothing like that existed in the Persian Empire. And so she appeals to him where he'll feel it in his wallet, his treasuries. And so this will directly affect the king's revenues throughout the empire so she knows what buttons to press and that's primarily his own self-interest and so this is very effective as we see in verse 5 and so his his anger erupts like a volcano and so you see this he demands that she tell him verse 5 who is he where is he and who has dared to do this and so it's like he's completely forgotten about the edict to exterminate an entire people group like it wasn't that big of a deal in his mind it didn't make that much of an impression on him apparently it 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 doesn't ring a bell here as as she's talking to him so nonetheless he's furious that someone would attempt to harm his queen to harm her people and to harm his wallet and so the emotion and the the anger then of Esther's reply it's it's honestly it's it's difficult to capture in English. I think that the translators are doing the best they can, but it's in, in the Hebrew, it's this very staccato, this very uh, abrupt cadence to it. And so she answers his, who is this? Where is he? He answers those questions with this very pointed, very succinct accusation, probably with the pointed finger and a very rigid jaw. That's how I see this. Verse 6, a foe and an enemy... This wicked Haman, I'm not trying to point at anybody in here, so I don't know where to this, I don't know. so esther's so Esther, now you think about this. we know what's going on. We've just heard the story if you hadn't, didn't know it already, but she's put all her cards on the table here. this is this is that this is that moment. I mean, it's out there. Whose side will the king take here? Well, we are not left in suspense because it's very clear. Esther's words enraged the king not at her though and so but he jumps up he storms out of the banquet hall verse 7 the king rose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden he said I got to take a walk why is he is he just trying to calm down you know get some fresh air and just just take some breath, compose myself I mean, probably something like that, but I think there's, there's more going on here. There's, there's, it's more, it, more than just anger. He's facing this real quandary. Again, if you've been with us, you, you probably understand this. Can he actually punish Haman for a plot that he himself approved? If, and if he does, won't, won't he have to admit his own role in this fiasco and kind of lose face with people? This is something very important to this king. Moreover, he's issued what amounts to this irrevocable law, and so can he possibly rescind it? So the king is stuck. What's he going to do? How can, he, how can he navigate this? So the, Well, again, the story's moving fairly quickly here. So his, his dilemma is quickly resolved, and it's resolved because of Haman's foolishness. And so Ahasuerus, he's ticked off. He is fuming. But Haman, you see at the end of verse 6, he was terrified before the king and the queen. He is shaking in his sandals. He he is panicking. And so I, I think uh I don't even know if it's still on, but there used to be a show called To Catch a Predator and one of the major networks and, and Chris Hansen I think was the host and they would catch these uh child molesters and stuff and the, but you would see the panic on those guys' faces when they when he would walk out Uh, from behind the the room and 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 he would realize cameraman there and and police just around the in the other room and just that panic and that's kind of the image that I have here but this was worse than that because there would be no courts needed to bring swift justice on Haman he was completely at the mercy of this very erratic king and and so Haman realizes the king is furious with him. He knows what this king is capable of. He knows also that Ahasuerus, he really doesn't make decisions for himself without consulting other people. He has other people make his decisions. So he, he relies on people to tell him what to do. So his only chance of survival here lies in the hands of Esther. And so he has to beg for her to intercede before the king for his own life. And so while the king is out there fuming in the garden, verse 7, Haman stayed to beg for his life from the from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And so some background there. The harem protocol in Persia, it dictated that no one, no one other than the king could ever be left alone with the women of the harem. And so Haman should have left Esther's presence as soon as the king walked out of the room. Now, where could he have gone? He could have followed the king. That probably wouldn't have gone real well. He could have fled out into another room. That wouldn't have gone well either, because it would look like he was guilty, and and that would have probably invited some pursuit of some kind. So Haman's trapped. So, and even if he wasn't alone with the queen, if there were other servants and other people around, it, they were a man was never to be close to one of the king's women. They had to stay at least seven steps away. That was the law. So this is behind what we read in verse 8. And so the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. This was unthinkable behavior. But just savor the irony of this. Remember, this is the guy who had this, it was demanded that everybody bow down to him when he walked by. This is what got Mordecai in so much trouble. But this Persian prime minister, this Agagite, who's this, who is who's the sworn enemy of the Jews, he is now falling before this Jewish woman, begging for his life. And so the king walks in at that exact moment and sees this unforgivable infraction. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Oh, he's toast now. I mean, this is his final fatal action. So it's unlikely, it's, not, it's probably Haman's not actually trying to physically assault the king, the queen, or certainly sexually assault her. But that seems to be the spin that Ahasuerus conveniently puts on it. I mean, regardless of his intent, he's, he's, he's violated this, again, this rule. You don't come near one of the queen's, king's women. But the, and so this is enough to condemn him to death. And so this gets the king off the horns of his dilemma here. He can now execute Haman, save the queen, and not lose face. And so verse 8 goes on as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Judgment is falling on Haman. That is preparing him for execution. And then quickly, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance over the king, he has this brainwave this, oh, you know what? <laughs> He said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house in his backyard, 50 cubits, 70 feet high. And the king said, perfect, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So with that, the king's, that's quick, isn't it? It's fast. But the king's fury subsided. Game over. Issue resolved. Threat to Esther removed. I think Ahasuerus is probably thinking, now that we've taken care of that little unpleasantness, you know, what's for dinner? I'm hungry. But you think from Esther's perspective, it's not really over yet. Because even though Haman personally had been dealt with, his edict still remained in effect. It's like this ticking time bomb that's still counting down and just waiting to explode, waiting to destroy the Jews. That's not taken care of yet. And so Esther herself might be safe because the king clearly seems to want to protect her and she might be safe within the king's palace. But she's risked her life more for more than just her personal safety or her own future. Will she be able to rescue her people? That's the question that lingers and that's the That's the cliffhanger that we're going to have to once again wait to see, not just next week, but in three weeks after our missions conference. And so in the time that remains, before we worship together at the table, I just want us to pull back a little bit in this chapter and see it in its wider theological context. And so I'm actually going to piggyback a little bit off of uh, the ladies' Bible study. Laura, I'm sorry, singling you out here and embarrassing you, but... She taught very skillfully. I heard wonderful things about Tuesday and I talked to her before on the wrath of God in the ladies Bible study on Tuesday. And so this thread of judgment, of wrath it's running throughout the Esther story. And it runs through our world, doesn't it? We, we feel this and so we'll, we'll see that in just a moment. But And this is, the, this is what we're seeing in Esther and this is again a repeated pattern we see throughout history. God's God may seem silent, his hand may seem invisible, but judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. For his enemies, deliverance is coming for his people, but judgment's coming. So we need to remember that as we, for ourselves as we look out on our fallen world, as we as we face evil and opposition to God's cause, as we see abuse and oppression and all these things, we see judgments coming. It may, may not always be ob- obvious, but God, God may seem silent, but it's happening, it's coming. And so just a few statements to help us kind of uh, prepare again for the table and see this chapter in light of that theo- theological reality. First one thing I want to say is this. All of us as image bearers desire Judgment all of us as image bearers desire judgment so as image bearers we have this innate god-given sense of right and wrong we the, the fall has corrupted that understanding but it's still there and so i just to illustrate this I just think of the fact we are different from animals uh, as human beings, as image bearers of God. We there are certain species of animals where their mother, the mother will completely abandon one of her young to to protect and care for the other. There are um you know predators, predatory animals that attack and eat whatever animal just happens to be passing by. Certain insects devour their mate uh just to survive. So we're okay with all of those things in animals, aren't we? um we we find that entertaining many of us do to watch that kind of stuff on national geographic. It's fascinating to us, but if humans do any of those things, we are utterly repulsed and revolted, right? I hope you are, please nod if not I'm a little nervous we We know that those things are wrong in. For humans and so we, when we see wrongs like that, we, because those things do happen. There are versions of that that play out among humans, and when we see those things deep down, we want judgment, whether we admit it or not. That's that's that desire, and, and so. But when we look, but we look at this fallen world, we witness the awful, horrific consequences of sin all around us in our lives. We see people doing all kinds of evil and depraved acts towards others and abuse and corruption and oppression of all kinds and we want it to stop. We want wicked people to pay. If you aren't ever angry, if you, aren't ever, if you don't ever want judgment, if you don't ever desire this kind of uh, retributive justice, that's, something is wrong. Just just judgment is not opposed to love. It's actually an expression of love. And so this is all bound up in who God is. And therefore, as image bearers of God, we reflect that. But uh, one uh, theologian, Michael Whitmer, he explains how we can, and not just can, how we must reconcile God's wrath and His love. And so he he says that Scripture says that God is love and that He has wrath. This means that love lies deeper than wrath in the character of God. Love is his essential perfection without which he would not be who he is. Wrath is love's response to sin and is God's voluntary gag reflex at anything that destroys his good creation. God is against sin because he is for us and he will vent his fury on on everything that damages us. So love is at God's very... Core. First John 4 8 says, Anyone who does not know God, or anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so through all eternity, God has been love. He has existed for eternity in, the, in, in a state of love of Father, Son, Father to the Son, and Son to the Father, and Spirit to the Father. And so there's just been constant love feast going on for all eternity. There has never been a time when God has not been demonstrating love. Nor will there ever be. It's who he is. But God's wrath is, it is different. God has not always been wrathful for all eternity. He has not always had to express anger. His anger is a reaction to sin. It's, it's, a, it's to a lack of love, we could say. To a lack of love for him, to a lack of love for others. Wrath is a response to sin. And so therefore, wrath didn't exist till sin came into the world. God's, God was holy he was poised for that. And as sin came to be, God had to respond to it in a way that was consistent with his holy character. And So this sin, sin is this cosmic treason against, against the creator of the universe. He must respond. And so, again, as those made in God's image, all of us reflect in some way this desire for judgment against wrong. I mean, the ones, those of us who tend to struggle... Most, I think, with the concept of judgment, we tend to be really sheltered people. I mean, as you think of the world and you think of generations of Christians, and I, I, again, I count myself among them, and I think you probably could too. There's a Croatian theologian who said this, My thesis will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. He says, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture on judgment in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die and he goes on to talk about the hundreds of thousands that were killed in Yugoslavia in his his uh home country and in that area during the Balkan wars and and in Rwanda and he talks about not being able to imagine God not being angry. And so he goes on how did God react to the carnage by doting on the perpetrators in a in a grandfatherly fashion? by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the side of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And so why, why do we get mad? It's kind of evil. Why do we cry out for judgment? We image our God. Imperfectly, mind you, but we image him. And we want a God like that. If we were, if we were in a courtroom and a, and, a, and a person was taking the stand, was, was on trial for the murder of her own son or daughter, and the judge just got up there that morning, and he said, you know what? I, I'm feeling exceedingly generous today. And the guy just gets to escape we would be outraged because that's not what good judges do. That's not really love. That's not love to the victims and their families. That's that's not being loving to the perpetrator by not holding him accountable. We want judgment. We want a God who judges people like Haman. This desire for this kind of judgment is part of being an image bearer of God. Now, unfortunately, again, because of our sin, uh, 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 that desire gets corrupted. It gets all out of whack, doesn't it? And so we we get angry not about actual evil but we get angry about just things we don't like. We get we we lose it when we see someone that's hoarding toilet paper at the grocery store. Or we we somebody's taking too long ordering a Chick-fil-A or they're in the left lane going down highway 54 and and we and and and, and they won't move over. And so our desi- our our um, the the things that set us off are not the things that really matter. And also, our, our uh, desire for judgment can be very disproportionate. And so this, the punishment doesn't always fit the crime for us when it, when it comes to us. So we're not good at dispensing ju- justice We are judgment. We want judgment, but we don't want it in just ways, which isn't really just judgment. And so there's all kinds of ways we corrupt this, and we see this all over the place, don't we? But we're, we're probably more like the king here. Or we're more like Haman, we just want to burn the whole house down when something doesn't go our way, but that's not what it is. God's judgment is always right, always in balance, always just. And we should desire his judgment. And, and we also, we recognize in this story, God is, God is using appointed authorities to dispense justice, even though they do it very imperfectly. I mean, you think of this. Ah, Ahasuerus, he basically knows it's not really an accurate charge. He's not really trying to assault the queen, but this is what gets, what, what allows this to happen. And so, government, church, family, I mean, none of, none of, every, every level of authority in this world through which God exercises justice is flawed. It's not, it's not perfect. It's not done well. But, but this is my point. All of us, as image bearers, we desire it. We desire judgment. We want a righteous king who judges evil, who holds wicked people accountable. That's the first state. Second, quickly. The flip side of that is all of us as sinners deserve judgment. We need to hold those two together. There's a second category of people who tend to deny the need for judgment. It's not just the really sheltered people. It's the self-righteous people. And I also am in that camp squarely. And so they, we, we put ourselves in the category of the pretty good people. You know, some, sure we do bad things now and then, but we attribute that mostly to our biology, to our, to our, um, you know, circumstances or our environment. Maybe we lack education or resources or something like that, but we're pretty much okay people. That's how we think. Of course, there are the really bad people over there, the Adolf Hitlers, the Jeffrey Epsteins, the... You know, Bernie Madoffs, the Charles Mansons, those those people. But listen, brothers and sisters, we have more in common with them than we would ever want to realize or admit. We are infinitely more like Haman than we are like God. And so sure we can we can hold it together somewhat, some of the time. But just give give any one of us an unlimited supply of cash and unlimited power and and, and prestige and, and place and influence, and you see how we handle that. I mean, you just give, you give one of us, you know, an open fast lane on the interstate and see what we do with that. Or an open mic at a PTA meeting. If someone slights us in the l- smallest way, and we have, we have this little slightest uh, edge over them in terms of authority. You know, on the ranking at our, our workplace, we're just one notch above them, but yet we leverage that to crush them. We can see the little Haman roaring in all of us, can't we? That monster's inside of us too. And so in this story, Haman's not the only bad guy. (laughs) Certainly, Ahasuerus, we see his flaws. But Mordecai is compromised. Esther is compromised. The Jewish people, they aren't any better than the Persians around them. That's why they're there in the first place, in exile. The only difference is God chose them by his sovereign grace. And so all of us, we're sinners. We deserve judgment. We're all born as we talk about shaking our fists when we come out of the womb, shaking our fists at God and in rebellion against Him. Romans 3.23. Again, what verse we, many of us could quote and we've heard it so many times, but all have sinned. We all have fallen short of God's glory and in the wages of that sin is death, Romans 6.23. So we all deserve to experience God's just anger, His wrath forever in hell. Society isn't divided between bad people and good people. It's between bad people who remain under God's condemnation and bad people who've been redeemed from God's condemnation through Christ. And so that brings us to the last statement and brings us to the table. And it's this. Is that Christ, so all of us as image bearers, we desire judgment. All of us as sinners, we deserve judgment. And Christ, although innocent, endured judgment for us. So in Esther, the bad guy goes to the gallows while the good guy goes free. That's the the story that we like to applaud. But here's the good news. This is the gospel. This is so much greater. The truly good guy, Jesus, the only perfect one, he gets the gallows, the cross, while the bad guy, you and me, we, we get to skate. Jesus takes the punishment we deserve. He died on the cross in our place God is still righteous. Justice is actually served there. And yet we go free. We get to live. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So why did Jesus go to the cross? To, to pay the penalty so that we might escape his judgment. We can escape it because Christ died in our place. He took it for us. He endured our judgment, our death, uh, the, the, the hell that we deserved. He endured that in concentrated form on the cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's what's written. Every last one of us deserves a curse. We all deserve to have a gallows built with our name on it be hung from. Only Jesus was cursed for us. Galatians 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And instead of the curse, instead of the condemnation that we deserve, because Christ was cursed for us, He died for us, He rose again, we now receive life that will last forever. Salvation from judgment but notice it's salvation from judgment through judgment on the cross this is how blessed we are brothers and sisters if you are in Jesus though we rightly deserve the fate of Haman though we rightly deserve the cross and God's wrath Christ himself became a curse for us And so Esther, it's pointing us ahead, it's pointing us forward to this greater hero, this greater mediator, this greater intercessor, the God, man, Jesus Christ. We've seen that throughout, but let me tell you, it's also pointing us to another greater enemy, Satan. And so the, the serpent that was at work in the garden in Genesis, the serpent that was there tempting Christ in his, in his early ministry, that serpent that's still working to deceive us today. You think about this. Satan had this, like Haman, he had this foolproof plan all set up. He had it done. The gallows were made. And so, as we see Galatians at the right time Christ came into the world, the devil's singing at the right time. We have Roman execution and their practices. We have crucifixion that's firmly in place. Everything's placed. The gallows are made. They're high. And Jesus was hung on them. And he actually did hang on those gallows. Jesus went up on that cross and everyone around thought, it's all over. But what was that really? It was, yes, his heel was bruised, but the serpent's head was crushed. It was the death blow to Satan and sin and death. So on the cross, the greatest enemy was defeated. He's, he's already been defeated, and his final overthrow is certain. It's coming. And so the devil, in essence, was hung on his own gallows. And this is where we get back. 1 Corinthians one twenty five, where I began, this morning and what we get to see played out in Esther, and we see it representative of this larger story it's that the weakness of god is stronger than men brothers and sisters this table is testifying to that glorious reality and we're going to come and feast and drink together in a moment and celebrate let's pray lord thank you for thank you for the exclamation point that that um our gathering around this table puts on this glorious truth, Lord, today. And so as we sing now and as we behold you, the one who created, fashioned all the stars, the one who holds everything together, and the one whose hands, through whose hands were driven nails to take the curse for us, as we behold you, may we just joyfully sing and celebrate these realities. And then as we come to the table, just revel in all that is ours because of Christ who took the curse for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.